Welcome to the Azure Security Podcast, where we discuss topics relating to security, privacy, reliability, and compliance on the Microsoft Cloud Platform. Hey, everybody, welcome to episode 35. Uh, this week is myself, Michael, Gladys, and Mark. Unfortunately, Sarah can't be with us this week owing to time zone problems. Um, we also have a special guest. We have Michael Maklovich, who's here to talk to us about Azure Defender for SQL Threat Protection. This is part one of a two-part series. Uh, part two will cover Azure SQL Defender Vulnerability Assessment, but that will be on in our next podcast. But before we get to Michael, uh, let's turn to the news. I'll kick things off. A few things uh, really took my, my interest over the last few weeks. The first one is the ability to configure applications with application configuration and key vault. Uh, the purpose of this is that you can store some sensitive information in app config, and then the super sensitive stuff, such as encryption keys uh, and, and the like, can be stored in Key Vault. And app config can seamlessly access the Key Vault on your behalf, uh, which is absolutely brilliant. Next one, uh, I spotted a YouTube video uh, from the Microsoft machine learning team. It's entitled Securing Machine Learning Environments on Azure Machine Learning. This is pretty important. I mean, if you have models and data that is used as the input to machine learning, uh, it's critically important that that data be uh, be clean and correct uh, and not tampered with. And so, this video goes through uh, some of the some of the best practices around uh, securing uh, ML data. I also spotted a the Microsoft Identity Learning Path. I'll give a link to that. Yeah, I'm a dyed in the wool security guy. And even though I know, you know some of the basics of identity, I don't pretend to know absolutely everything. And I found this, uh, this learning path incredibly useful to fill in some of those knowledge gaps. In fact, it's uh, led me to spend quite a bit of time really getting into the bowels of OAuth 2. I uh, wouldn't recommend that, but, but I found myself spending quite a bit of time, again, you know, pulling apart OAuth tokens. And the last thing is that we now have uh, general availability for private link. Uh, with the Azure Managed HSM. So a Managed HSM is kind of like a, it's essentially a key vault, but there's different backend hardware. Um, it's a FIPS 140-2 level 3 validated hardware. It is not a shared resource. This is your own individual HSM. Uh, for the most part, you know, it's a very specialized uh, piece of hardware that's used for very specialized requirements. My sort of general guidance here is if you don't know what that means, then you probably don't need it. But the point is, it's now got, it's now got private link support, which is, uh, which is nice to see. This is Gladys, and I wanted to talk about the ransomware detection that has been added to Azure Sentinel. As you may know, there has been many capabilities that Microsoft has added to our services to try to prevent the loss of data, such as uh, OneDrive and Exchange saving any data uh, or uh, deleted files or mailboxes for 30 days, SharePoint backing up every 12 hours and retaining for 14 days, retention policies or even litigation whole can be set within Office 365, which preserves data. E-discovery and, and content searches can be used um, in the discovery or uh, recovery of, of that data. Azure backups can help back up the data sources and VM um, uh, run in Azure. But how do we speed up the detection of possible attempts to, run, uh, to do ransomware? Well, uh, many groups uh, within Microsoft, including the Microsoft Threat Intelligence Center or MISTIC, 
have collaborated to uh, create action sentinel fusion detection for ransomware. Basically, alerts that are potentially associated with ransomware activities are correlated together within this fusion machine learning model. If something is detected, it triggers a high severity incident title, multiple alerts possibly related to ransomware activity detected. The correlated signal used by this fusion machine learning model come from services such as Azure Defender or Azure Security Center, Microsoft Defender for Endpoint, Microsoft Defender for Identity, and Microsoft Cloud Application Security. I am really excited about this capability since it really shows the power of a well-integrated suite of products. And although in this case, um, the integration happens uh, within Microsoft products, Microsoft services have capability of integrating with many third-party uh, vendors. If you missed a previous postcard where we talk about these, I recommend uh, looking at the Microsoft Graph and other integration capabilities uh, uh, within our services. Uh, those podcasts have uh, really uh, good information. When it comes to uh, ransomware, the one thing to remember is that time is the most important factor in minimizing impact and possible loss of data. So the sooner alerts are raised uh, to security analysts with uh, the required details on various activities, attacker activities, the faster uh, the ransomware attacks can be contained and remediated. The next thing that I wanted to talk about is a, a blog titled Ensure Compliance Using Separation of uh, Duties Checks in Access uh, Request. It talks about the separation of duty checks feature that are now uh, in preview in Azure AD Entitlement Management which helps uh, prevent users from acquiring excessive or incompatible access rights. An example given is that uh, auditors may not want a person that is in the sales department to be able to change accounting data. Or maybe they don't want IT auditors to also be an IT administrator. The separation of duty prevents users from receiving uh, this type of combination of permissions that could lead to misuse. The last news I wanted to share is the Azure Security Center Compliance Over Time Report. This is a way to see changes over time on applying the proper compliance requirement. Yeah, a couple of things caught my attention this week. The, uh, the first is uh, something I actually contributed to a, a long time ago when we did the first revision of this. So we have this uh, incident response reference guide was what we put out. and. Uh, it was kind of in a downloadable PDF, and we uh, kind of converted that, modernized it, and so um, that's out there for folks to sort of learn a little bit of uh, of Zen and the art of kind of how to respond to uh, incidents from kind of a process design perspective and a, a philosophical perspective, and how do you think about shaping that so that you're you're effective on it? A lot of good advice, a lot of hard won lessons learned from our Dart team, IR team, and uh, and many customers as well. And the other thing that I wanted to uh, talk about and share a little this week, it's a little bit of good news because one of the things that's always frustrating to me is, you know, how much our industry is so splintered with different points of view that are, you know, selling products or this or that or, you know, uh, in different ways. And so we always end up with this sort of chaos that that, that lands on customers that, that 
or Microsoft's customers that you know people have to like figure out okay what is the truth amongst all this noise right and so one of the things that that was sort of kind of inspiring for me a little bit was uh, I was part of the NCCOE um, so the National Cybersecurity Center of Excellence um, zero trust effort that NIST is hosting so we got to see pretty much all the different vendors kind of share their point of view on zero trust and it was you know as uh, diverse as you would uh, imagine it, it might be with all these vendors um, and different uh, security product makers providing their points of view. And the, the cool thing was, is that I started to see like that NIST diagram be, started to become sort of a central theme as everyone was sort of mapping their stuff to it. And it created a level of consistency. So, you know, a, a nice glimmer of hope there that Zero Trust will help our industry become a lot more consistent and a, uh, and a lot more, uh, you know, which of course helps you um, execute well because you're not arguing over details that don't uh, that aren't as important. The other thing that uh, that occurred to me lately, and I'll, I'll, do, I'll do this as quick as I can. We I've started to see more and more how important it is for security to really look at itself through the lens of being um, a part of the business um, and uh, and really partnering much closer with you know the the business lines and and the, and the functions of the business. One of the things I started to realize that that has, I think, is kind of at the root of a lot of the challenges that we experience in security organizations is that, you know, the, the, the accountability really isn't in the right place. Right. And so when you think about risk, like something goes wrong or goes right, you know, with your car or whatever it happens to be, you know, you own all the good and the bad of it, you know, where you park it, how fast you drive it, et cetera. But when we look at security and an asset from a business point of view, oftentimes, you know, anything that could go wrong normally you know, pretty much lands on the the, the 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 asset owner in the business, except for security. We're going to blame the security guys for that, you know, because that, that's obviously a technical fault that these smart humans did stuff. And so we, we often see this sort of blaming of the CISO and blaming of the security organization when something goes wrong. And, and we're talking 30 to, to 40 or 50 years of decisions were made when security wasn't important. And whoever in security now inherited that. So it's, it's really not really that fair, quite frankly, to put it on security and kind of own that. But it also drives bad behavior because if I don't have to own the security outcomes of a decision as a business asset owner, then I'm going to take a lot more risks than I should versus if I actually own it, I'm going to think about it a lot more carefully. That doesn't mean we're just going to dump the responsibility on these business asset owners and say, you figure out the, the cyber, right? Because they don't know. Um, but the more that we can, you know, as security professionals, you know, be a bridge, and, and or rather build a bridge and, and help educate them and help them understand in their terms what cybersecurity really means to them and learn their language and kind of communicate. I think much better off we will be in cybersecurity in the short term and the long term. So, you know, just you know, a couple of thoughts there. Well, now we have the news out of the way. Uh, let's turn attention to our guest. Uh, this week we have Michael McLevich, who's here to talk to us about also, as your defender for SQL threat protection. Uh, welcome to the podcast, Michael. Uh, Michael, do you want to ex- give uh, our listeners a little background on what you're doing, how long you've been at Microsoft? Thank you, uh, Mikhail. I've been in Microsoft for three years now. Uh, all of the time, I was a product manager for Azure Defender for uh, SQL. It's been rebranded a few times, so maybe you remember it is uh, is Advanced Threat Protection. Which is catching attacks, and that's yeah, it. and you bring up an important point there. We will have a follow-on to this um, in September, where we will talk about the other pillar that's not being talked about today. So, before we get stuck into this, um, it's probably worthwhile having a little bit of a historical perspective as to you know what this product does. Um, I mean, amongst many other things, and you know, please correct me if I'm wrong here. 
But you know, a big part of what this product detects in real time is uh, is SQL injection vulnerabilities, right? Is that a, a fair comment? Yes, so I think SQL injection is one of the attacks that we uh, catch with the advanced fraud detection, but for sure it's uh, one of the most uh, I don't know uh, popular and famous uh, SQL related attacks. But it's also a pretty interesting attack because you're attacking like you don't need to breach credentials or users or something like that uh, to exploit SQL injection. You're doing that through an interface that is aimed for uh, inserting data. Uh, the data is just not uh, I don't know cleaned properly. But uh, but it makes it uh, pretty unique. And we have also other families of detectors. We're working on adding new detectors. For, from historic perspective, I think uh, SQL injection for a long time was our flagship detector. Yeah, and just to add a little bit of context there. So <laughs> back in the day, uh, I was uh, I worked on our web server IIS, and obviously IIS was used to front end um, hundreds of thousands, um, if not more, uh, SQL Server instances. And uh, one day I got an email from this uh, this guy who went by the handle of Rainforest Puppy, um, saying that he'd found this class of vulnerabilities um, through IIS, uh, even though the vulnerability technically wasn't in IIS or SQL Server. Technically, it was in the way you know custom code was written to query the database. And uh, yeah, that was sort of my first baptism of um, of SQL injection vulnerabilities. And uh, yes, that was Rainforest Puppy. And in fact, RFP and I have actually hooked up again after all these years. Uh, his real name is Jeff Forrestal, a fantastic guy. But yeah, so I was uh, sort of on the front lines there with you know, cross-site scripting, SQL injection, uh, memory corruption, file name canonicalization problems back in the day. I'm sure that's probably bringing back PTSD for a few people out there. But I have a long history with preventing SQL injection vulnerabilities. So back to the um, back to the product itself. So you want to give us an idea of you know you know what sort of versions of SQL Server this thing protects? Yeah. So um, we protect all the SQLs in uh, in the cloud, and that's the first. So uh, Azure SQL Server, SQL databases, managed instance, uh, SQL servers that are inside the uh, Synapse workspaces used to be SQL data warehouses. And uh, we also have only threat detection without vulnerability assessment currently. Uh, for open source databases in Azure. It's not exactly SQL, but uh, it's another uh, plan that we have. Uh, Azure, like protecting uh, Azure uh, PostgreSQL, Azure MySQL, uh, MariaDB. Uh, and also in the last year and a half, we realized that when you protect a database, you, you don't want to only protect a database, you want to protect your entire environment and your entire uh, data environment. So uh, we spread it uh, also to hybrid environments and outside of Azure, protect SQL servers 2012 and above uh, in on-premise, on Azure VMs, Amazon EC2s. Going back to the previous question, um, we started already in the cloud area. So I think a lot of uh, protection uh, and data security solutions uh, started way back then at the uh, on-premise era, and now they're trying to move into the cloud. We started in the cloud. Uh, our first product was uh, Azure Defender Threat Protection Vulnerability System for Azure SQL servers. Then we kind of like realized that customers are not doing or only on-prem or only cloud. They're choosing hybrid environments. So we moved uh, also those. And an interesting fact that we realized is that uh, attackers have sometimes different targets. So one target, which is uh, maybe the more obvious target, everyone is calling uh, data the modern crown jewels. So when you protect SQL, it's obvious you're trying to protect the data, right? They're just trying to exfiltrate the data, and they're trying to take the data out and then uh, lock it in some uh, ransomware manner, uh, just to sell the data, stuff like that. 
but when we uh, got ourselves into SQL Service on-prem, we also realized uh, another interesting pattern, and that is attackers are trying to attack the SQL Server not to gain access to the data, but to gain access to the machine. Uh, SQL Servers on-prem, uh, there are these big and strong machines with lots of configuration, uh, which might confuse a few people, and they are sometimes hard to uh, update or to change because uh, they uh, require a lot of expertise. And uh, what happens there is that attackers try to brute force all SQL Server machines and using commands like XP command shell or uh, the ability to write registries from the SQL to the Windows. They're just jumping from the SQL to the uh, OS layer. And then they're starting things like crypto miners, ransomware attacks on the entire machine. Actually, you bring up an interesting point there about XP underscore command shell and sort of tweaking the registry. I think it's important to understand. I think it's important our, our listeners understand that those features are not there in the Azure, sort of the Azure native, the cloud native versions of, say, Azure SQL DB. And this is an important point, right? Because, you know, XP underscore command shell, for those of you who are not aware, is a way of in, essentially invoking anything from any command shell, so command.exe or you know whatever you need to run from within the context of SQL Server. And that can become quite dangerous, actually, because if you've got a SQL Server running as, you know, in an elevated environment, let's say it's running as, uh, let's say it's running as a system, which, by the way, you should you know, never do, but let's just you know, take a pathological example and just say it is, then in theory, XP underscore command shell is now running a system. And that's a you know a, a very serious vulnerability. Now the cool thing is that in the PaaS offerings of Azure SQL DB, that feature is not there. Uh, it's not that you can turn it on. It's it's just not there. And same with other features like uh, like being able to write to the registry. That feature is not there either. And the other aspect, which I think is critically important, is you know on-prem SQL Server, you have complete control over uh, what identity that process runs as. Whereas in the case of um, uh, when it's running in the cloud, you don't. Um, they, you know, all our PaaS offerings run at least privilege. They always do, and you can't configure it. You can't change it. So these are examples of you know something we've often referred to as the shared responsibility model, right? Where some things are managed by Microsoft and Azure, and some things are managed by the customer. And this is a really good example of where we're handling some of the default configurations, so you don't have to. And you don't potentially run the risk of making a mistake and exposing this, uh, as you as you point out, you know, exposing this uh, this compute power to attackers because those features are just not there. Yeah, I mean, I I couldn't agree with you more, Michael, on how important it is to to look at that shared responsibility model profile and you know favor the cloud um, because it is much better. But I also love that the the SQL uh, SQL Defender capabilities are also hybrid because no matter how much you love the cloud, you want to get there because of that lower risk. You do have to always secure the enterprise you got, and so yeah, I'm I'm a huge fan of this. I've been following it ever since um, uh, the SQL Defender or ATP or whatever it was called when it when it launched um, was out there. Um, you know, applying UVA technology, the SQL injection detection. So yeah, love it. So when when Michael and I were talking about this earlier in the week, um, he mentioned I didn't even I didn't even think about this, but using uh, SQL Server as essentially another step in the in the road for sort of pushing out ransomware um, and being and using the you know the compute power of these databases as crypto miners, is that something that you're seeing or heard of much around SQL databases being used um, you know for ransomware? Yeah, so we saw it especially with uh, all the SQL servers. And sometimes it's interesting because uh, you see customers that they decide what to protect on based on the sensitivity of the data that is in the database or if it's production or not production. 
But when your goal is a crypto miner, for example, you don't care about the data in the database or if it's production or not production. CPU is a CPU for you, right? Um, so it's an interesting example where you have a component that someone is thinking of protecting only parts of it or protecting it only if it makes some criteria in the in the gain function that he sees. The customer is wanting wants to protect only the data. He says, all right, there is no production data there. There is no sensitive data there. I won't protect the SQL server. And then the SQL server uh, is being breached. And the SQL server itself, as we mentioned, doesn't have any uh, interest in... Uh, treasure or a bounty for the for the attacker but from the SQL server you can uh, go to the uh, to the compute power and run a crypto miner or start a lot of movement uh, inside the network I think to, to circle back to to your point so those are great points and I did, didn't mention uh, why we started seeing those attacks only in uh, on premise uh, because in Azure they're all uh, blocked and I think it's always you know, to be fair, you always need to talk about security together with productivity, right? It's always a fine balance between those. Yeah, but I think it's also really important to, to remember that uh, a lot of times what is comfortable for you is also comfortable for the attacker. So we see a lot of customers that indeed, uh, uh, I think as you said, XP CMD shell, uh, the ability to run command shells from the SQL is by default off, also for SQL servers uh, on-prem, starting some year, I don't remember at which point. The idea here is that customers sometimes prefer to go, um, I don't know, I would say the lazy way or the simplest way and use this tool, although there are other alternatives. Uh, but that's exactly what attackers also want to do, right? If it's comfortable for the customer, it would be comfortable for the attacker. And if the customer can easily run things on the machine, so the attacker would also want to run things easily on the on the machine. And we did see it uh, happening not too rail, rarely, unfortunately. Yeah, you know... I remember when it was turned off, when it was turned off by default in the on-prem version of SQL Server, because um, I was actually involved, actually sort of actively involved in many of the conversations that led to that decision. And my somewhat flippant but serious comment was, look, when you've got a feature in a product where the number one user of that feature is the attacking community, then perhaps it's time to turn that feature off. That wasn't the only thing that was turned off. It was XP underscore command shell, but also comm support was turned off too. Um, so that way, you know, people weren't writing com objects, you know, for doing SQL queries. We've talked about PaaS versus IaaS. So this, as you mentioned un- mentioned before, this protects all versions of SQL Server, both uh, on-prem, those running, say, AWS in EC2 instances, uh, as well as our PaaS offerings, like Azure SQL DB and man- Azure SQL Managed Instance. And you also you know, mentioned the, the productivity aspect. I think that's that's always important as well. What else? What other things you know can th- does this product do? What other classes of vulnerabilities uh, does this tool does this tool sort of detect? All right. So we have a few classes. Uh, one that we already mentioned is, uh, of course, uh, SQL injection, our flagship for a long time. Also, now we can maybe circle back to our SQL injection uh, algorithm. And it's pretty interesting. One, it's we have few patterns for it, and it's more interesting than the basic looking for one equal one. Uh, for those that are familiar with SQL injection, uh, we have a family of uh, UEBA, uh, which is a, which stands for a user entity behavior analysis, and uh, when we find uh, anomalies in the communication with the, the database or the activity of the database, we have another algorithm which became kind of a family is the brute force detector. Uh, which will involve it to having uh, three layers of brute force, and that's also an interesting story. Uh, and we have a threat intelligence uh, algorithm-based uh, 
which are coming from the vast trend technologies that Microsoft is collecting, uh, also by itself and from customers and from uh, and from vendors. And uh, we're using all this data to alert you when there is a, a suspicious uh, IP is approaching your database. When I first saw this feature, one of the first things that sort of sprung to mind was how does this work? I mean, is this something that runs in the SQL Server process? I mean, do I have to pay for the compute? Do I have to, you know, am I, am I going to see a performance hit from running this tool? All right. So th- this is a great question, and it comes back again to the productivity or some kind of productivity versus security. You know, the, the most secure SQL Server would probably be a brick, but you can't do much with the brick, right? There is always some fine balance in the cloud. You actually pay uh, nothing out of your uh, performance, compute, stuff like that. It's all running in the background. And so this is another uh, great plus for the cloud. Uh, You just uh, enable it. And you can enable it or on the uh, SQL Server level or through Azure Security Center on the entire uh, subscription level. Then it just protects all your SQL servers and that subscription. In the background, we have our own compute uh, side by side with your compute. But uh, it doesn't affect you. It, it's also very not intrusive. It's reading the, the queries, the logins uh, after they're happening and analyzing if there are any attacks. For the SQL servers on machine, and so the story is a little bit different. There, indeed, you need to install an agent, and uh, our analysis is running on your machine. So it takes part of your compute and part of your memory. Uh, we're always doing uh, tests for that. We are uh, always monitoring uh, for the, uh, the entire community of protected uh, of protected customers, what the situation there. And when we do deployments, we always check the uh, our standards there. Like for uh, SQL servers on-prem, we don't have much uh, of another option. You would always pay something out of your compute. We're trying to make it uh, as minimal as possible. And we're aiming for less than uh, 5%. On average, but uh, of course, and I don't want to promise you anything, it really depends on your payload. It can be much less, uh, as much as there is much less uh, to go from 5%, and it, can, and it might be more uh, really depending on the, the workload that you run. Hey, Michael, so uh, can you explain a little bit how the telemetry comes through? Uh, is this uh, interconnected into Azure Security Center? How is it shown? In the cloud, it's very easy. The telemetry, uh, we get it from the from a background process. We started as part of the uh, Azure SQL team. So uh, there it's uh, really nicely handled and you don't need to do anything. The detections themselves go to Azure Security Center for the uh, on-prem version. So there again, the situation is always a little bit more complicated. And we get the telemetry through the log analytics uh, agent, also known as OMS agent. That's uh, the current solution. That's the solution that's used uh, in Azure Security Center for uh, servers telemetry. So we wanted to make sure all aligned there. The detections and the alerts themselves go to Azure Security Center and can be exported and go from Azure Security Center as any other alert. And that's, in general, a really important uh, principle for us to just keep uh, every of the Defender solutions aligned with the uh, broader scope. So Azure Defender um, for SQL is trying to be as similar in the management uh, point of view to Azure Defender for servers, uh, Azure Defender for storage, Azure Defender for app services. So uh, a last thought from me. So, I mean, how quickly can can this tool respond like when it detects sort of anomalous behavior? I mean, what sort of time frames are we looking at here? Right, that's a great question uh, and exactly a point that we're working on a lot lately. 
Our SQL injection uh, detector is real-time detector. Our UEBA detectors take some more time, and also the compute is done on our pipelines to not stress your machine currently. And you need to build a model, right? You have a lot of data to process there. So uh, it used to take us around 20 minutes in average to alert you about uh, anomalous uh, behavior. And part of that pipeline was our uh, brute force detector. We realized that uh, uh, letting you know uh, about brute force 20 minutes uh, after it started, it's uh, way too late. Doesn't allow you enough time or doesn't give you the, the right uh, time to detect to respond to this detection, uh, which is what really matters to us. We did a lot of work lately. And we took uh, our brute force detection down from being around those 20 minutes to less than a minute. So currently, brute force detections and SQL injection detections are real-time detectors. And we're working also to bring the other ones closely as possible to live detections. The idea with brute force is that now you can use uh, other hooks in Azure Security Center and uh, workflow automation to just uh, block the brute force in IP out of the network and uh, not allow it to continue. Actually, before we wrap this up, I just I just thought about something. When when you you and Gladys were talking about Azure Security Center, uh, one of the nice things about feeding into Azure Security Center is that you know there's no sort of e- extra education that's needed to learn some new tool. You can use all the reporting and you know reporting abilities and alerting abilities that are in Azure Security Center. Um, I mean, my guess is you could probably even open up a, a ticket with ServiceNow or something, right? You could even export it to your to your seam. Is that is that a fair comment? Yeah, for sure. So you, you can do all of those things as you can do them for all the alerts in Azure Security Center. Even r- raising the bar here, so if you already have uh, some connector that opens uh, every Azure Defender for Server uh, alert in ServiceNow or sending every Azure Defender for Storage uh, alert into your SIM solution, uh, if you would now uh, enable Azure Defender for SQL, it would be exactly the same experience, right? It's the same scheme, the same connector, uh, it's really extendable. So yeah, you don't need to educate your people uh, again. And all the automations uh, are really smoothly moving on. So if you decided to start with only one of the Azure Defender plans and then uh, go to the others, or you started with all of them and just want to turn off one, and you started with few relevant and there are the new ones that are coming out, everything is just uh, fits in. You, you are part of the same family, you are part of the same suit. So yeah, it's a great comment. I've been learning a little bit about the integration. Uh, does that mean also, since uh, we're talking about Azure Security Center, is it giving like guidance as part of the like a secure score or ways uh, for the customer to know that certain capabilities are, are not enabled? So I'm focusing on the SQL threat detection. We do have some uh, integrations between the alerts and the uh, recommendations. Uh, In the alert page, you can see the recommendations on the same resource. You can have a resource context, which is also something really strong that we have in Microsoft and some other uh, alternatives can't obtain because they don't have the all cloud context. But... I'm not sure. I'm not sure what you meant with the secure score here. It just um, as part of threat protection uh, that I have seen for other products. Uh, sometimes, uh, uh, in order to reduce the risk, uh, we provide guidance. And I didn't know if SQL, uh, the threat protection portion, basically surfaced that uh, that guidance as part of secure score somewhere else in Azure Security Center. Oh, so yeah. Uh, so as we started, uh, there are two pillars for Azure Defender: uh, threat protection for Azure Defender for SQL. Threat protection is only one of them. We have uh, the threat protection capabilities and the vulnerability assessment. 
Vulnerability assessment is used for hardening. It goes into the security score. You can find it among the other recommendations in Azure Security Center, and that gives you the guidance of how to uh, avoid those attacks. We're talking about learning uh, from from that threat protection, and, and I guess we're going to hear more next podcast. Yeah, that's the plan. Hey, Michael, so one, one thing we ask our guests is if they had one final thought to leave our listeners with, uh, what would it be? Only one last thought. All right. I think I would say that uh, an, a nice insight is to think about that attackers don't just want your data. They sometimes also want your compute. But for sure, you need to protect your data. Uh, it's a multi-layered approach. You need to protect your data. You need to protect the uh, compute beneath it. Uh, and you need to protect the whole environment and uh, care for the hygiene of your uh, data environment to make sure the data is not stolen and the computer under it is also not hey, stolen. Hey, well, Michael, thank you so much for joining us this week. Uh, we really appreciate you taking the time. I know you're uh, very busy, but again, uh, I learned a great deal. Uh, it's always good to sort of go back into talking about SQL injection vulnerabilities, even though uh, this particular feature does one heck of a lot more than just, uh, just detecting SQL injection. And to all our listeners out there, thank you so much for listening. Take care, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to the Azure Security Podcast. You can find show notes and other resources at our website, azsecuritypodcast.net. If you have any questions, please find us on Twitter at Azure SecPod. Background music is from ccmixter.com and licensed under the Creative Commons license.